Dawn of War is back to redefine real-time strategy gaming and offer the most fun you can have with Warhammer 40,000. Building on 12 years of critically acclaimed gameplay, Dawn of War 3 combines the epic scale of the first Dawn of War with the customization and elite heroes of Dawn of War 2. The result is a best-in-class real-time strategy game that offers the rich strategic experience, stunning visuals, and catastrophic surprises that players have come to expect. Dawn of War 3 will be released on April 27th and is available to pre-order now. The open beta will take place from 10 a.m. PST Friday, April 21st until 10 a.m. PST, Monday, April 24th. Register now at www.donofwar.com slash beta. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, he's the healer to my tank and the tank to my healer. It's Jason Concepcion. Hi, Jason. Number two podcast on iTunes about gaming. (laughs) Yeah, we made the mistake of checking and uh, (laughs) we're not number one, but we're number two. Number two is pretty good. There are a lot of video game podcasts out there. Number two is not bad. No, not at all. So we are going to do a PC-centric podcast today. Got to hear both sides. But we uh, <laughs> later in this episode, we're going to talk to the designer of the Game of the Moment Ultimate Epic Battle Simulator, Rob Weaver. We're going to talk to Tony Palumbi about his excellent book about World of Warcraft in just a moment. Before we get there, we are doing an Overwatch-centric pod in a couple of weeks. But just want to say, because people have been asking every now and then, <laughs> have I played Overwatch yet? Yes, I have played Overwatch. Tell us all about I it, like Ben, it. please. And by the way, <laughs> let me just say that I am really annoyed that you did not that I said, text me when you're going to play, <laughs> and then you did not text me when you got on and played, and you just merely said, Overwatch is fun. <laughs> it's so much pressure. I know you're an angry Overwatch player. So I that's do what get, I've heard. I'm, I'm trying to be less angry about Overwatch. Yeah. Anyway, don't have time to dwell on it, but I will just say that I think it has a nice sweet spot of strategy and pick up and playness. I mean, I'm sure I was terrible. I, I didn't feel terrible, but... I tend to like shooters where everyone's kind of on the same playing field and yeah. just kind of want to jump in and start playing, which I did. So probably the shooters I've played the most in the past are games like Halo 2 or Day of Defeat, where it's just sort of wave after wave and it doesn't really change. And Overwatch is not that. Obviously, there's a ton of strategy, but it's a good kind of strategy. I, I played a, a bunch of different characters and the game is completely different. And I like that a lot. So I look forward to playing what more. characters did you like best i liked lucio best okay. i think i like and this this is great you recommended him to me and i i gotta say he right off the bat i felt comfortable skating around wonderful all right 30 second news segment on a scale of attack of the clones to empire strikes back how excited are you for star wars battlefront 2 which we know now is going to be co-written by walt williams who wrote spec ops the line one of the most praised stories of a shooter well i hope some of that darkness 
gets in there. Uh, I'm yes. relatively, I'd say like on a scale of one to 10, I'm a 6.5. The last couple of battlefronts have left me a little cold, but mm-hmm. I am, I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah. I'm a little worried about the turnaround time. Yeah. Like I don't know how, how, how long they've had to work on this because the last battlefront didn't have a single player. And so I don't know if this is just a reaction to the complaints about that. And if so, it'd be hard to imagine a fully fledged game of the kind I would love happening in a year. But it looks good. Space Battles, original Star Wars story for the first time in years in a video game. So I'm excited. And other news, we are getting a SNES re-release from Nintendo, who seems to be scamming (laughs) the entire world. (laughs) Listen, Nintendo's business model is essentially like they hold your childhood nostalgia hostage. Yeah. And I hate to say how much I want this thing, even though I know that it's a scam. (laughs) I'm being scammed and I really want this thing. I was going to ask you what console you would most want to be re-released in this form. It would be this. Is it it this? Yeah, it it is. Okay. Well, give me a Dreamcast classic. I don't care if it hasn't been long enough. Dreamcast was classic from day one. Also, emulators exist, people. They really do. You can go play this stuff whenever you want. You don't have to be held hostage. All right. Let us get to our first guest. So we are joined now by Tony Palumbi, who is the author of a new book called Blood Plagues and Endless Raids, A Hundred Million Lives in the World of Warcraft. And Jason and I have been devouring this book, and we really, really like it. And I say that as someone who was not a WoW player, really, uh, to the extent that I played MMOs (laughs) at all, I was more of a Guild Wars guy. I think I I spent one afternoon in World of Warcraft at the urging of my friends, and then I was scared to continue and gave it up forever. So. But you did not, and you got a good book out of it, and so did all of us. So I'm glad that you played. Hi, Tony. Hi, guys. Thank you very much for the kind words. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'll start by asking you, I guess, about that wariness of playing WoW because of the supposed addictiveness of it. I was listening to another podcast I like, The Gist, recently, and Mike Pesca, the host, had an author on who was also plugging a book about media and how it demands all of our attention. And and WoW was like the thing that he made sound the scariest. You know, he he said something (laughs) like there were 100 million players and half of them were addicted or something, which, you know, we we had the authors of the book Mortal Kombat on recently. And they explained that the rates of actual video game addiction are very low to non-existent, at least compared to other types of addiction. But I do want to ask, just because you obviously got very seriously sucked into the game and know mm-hmm. many other people who did, what do you think the rate of playing WoW as, say, your primary recreational activity was as a percentage of people who played it at all? Well, the experience varies really widely, uh, player to player. Mm-hmm. There's some people who are playing 8 to 10 hours a day, uh, and there are other people who are playing... 30 minutes a day, there are people who play in, you know, one four to six hour binge, you know, one or two days a week or just on the weekends. But the thing about WoW is because the nature of MMOs, as opposed to a lot of other games, is that they can't be beaten, right? That's the the (laughs) fundamental thing that distinguishes those games from a lot of other games for most players. There's not an end point.
point. The credits are never going to roll. You're always going to have things in front of you to do that will offer you hours and hours and hours, really limitless potential hours of gaming entertainment for what is, you know, $15 a month. So uh, for a lot of people, there is a big temptation to have WoW sort of be the central, their central, you know, online or gaming pursuit. I would say that, again, it's a pretty small number of people that are truly like pathologically having issues with the game. I really mm-hmm. like your like your other guests. I, I sort of reject the framework of addiction mm-hmm. uh, when we're talking about video games. You know, I've known people who are addicts to drugs and alcohol and things, and I really, I really don't think that the experiences are are comparable. I think framing things that that way, frankly, sort of diminishes the actual suffering and problems that that addicts have. So. Um, mm-hmm. I have obviously got pulled into the game in a really serious way. I spent huge amounts of time in it. And that's sort of one of the central questions that I set out to answer with the book is that to, to sort of uh, explain how it was that so many of us spent thousands and thousands of hours in the game and didn't regret any of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of things to do in the game constantly. There's always something to keep you occupied. So there is a temptation to sort of dip in uh, for long periods of time. I would say also that to the extent that people play too much, to the extent that they you know neglect actual portions of their life, it's like any other sort of fixation is that that happens when there are other things in your life that you're you're lacking that you're not getting i think mm-hmm. whether or not that's that's fulfillment in your job or in your personal relationships or something like that but one of the things that i talk about in the book is how it's very possible to have a very serious relationship with World of Warcraft or with an MMO and also be a completely normal, healthy, functioning member of society. Uh, <laughs> World of Warcraft is actually like one of the reasons I think it was so popular, it became such a huge hit, is because it made it so they made it so much easier to be a normal person and to enjoy MMOs. If you look at the early MMOs, Ultima Online, EverQuest, Dark Age of Camelot games like that, they're incredibly punishing in a lot of ways, like the contortions and the and the feats that players had to go through to kill raid bosses or to to advance levels, even to just even, you know even in EverQuest, a death incurred while fighting a raid boss, and you have to suffer deaths to learn to fight a raid boss. Every death would incur XP loss loss, experience loss to the point where you would have to grind for hours and hours with a group of friends just to get back the experience you lost for that one death. So you wouldn't lose experience levels and levels down. That was a possibility in early MMOs. And WoW really took away all that punishing stuff and said, you know, what? if you die, you just have to run back to your bot. You know, you don't lose your equipment or whatever. It's just, you know, it's a two-minute inconvenience. And then they started to structure over time. They structured things more and more around first a weekly sort of schedule. Every week on Tuesday, they reset the servers, which means that all the raid bosses and everything you killed can be killed again. All the dungeons can be cleared again. And what's more, they also added daily quests. So they sort of structured things in the game around weekly schedules, around daily schedules, making it easier for gamers to enjoy the things in the game and feel like they were progressing and doing a lot of cool things and accomplishing stuff without having to spend 10 hours of their day doing so. It was something you could come home from work, sit down, and get done in a couple hours. So that was a big advancement. I also managed to avoid the time suck of Warcraft just 
from watching my friends play it, I kept <laughs> thinking about um, that line from Howl, I've seen the greatest minds of my generation destroyed by madness. <laughs> um, wow has, is interesting in terms of the popular culture because there's been, there's things that have happened within the game that have crossed over kind of into the wider context. I think everybody knows about Leroy Jenkins. Uh, All right, thumbs up. Ready, guys, Let's or... do this. Leroy Jenkins! Oh my God, he just ran in. God damn it, Leroy. Mm-hmm. But the Serenity Now raid on the Serenity Now funeral raid, I think, is one of the more infamous gaming moments that's kind mm-hmm. of just below the surface of, of, of common knowledge. Could you talk about that and then talk about the idea of, uh, that you bring up in the game of, of this dual-wielding morality? That's not, it's not your idea particularly, yeah. but it's just um, kind of a framework for understanding why this would happen. Yeah, so the idea of dual-wielding morality is a, a fabulously worded construct. Uh, I wish I could take some credit for it at all, but it is from uh, it comes from a uh, an, an academic, a, a sort of game philosopher named uh, Stacy Gauguin, who presented the idea at a conference and used Serenity now as as an example. So to to run through this story, there was a young woman. This is back in two thousand five, early days of the game. There was a young woman who loved the world of Warcraft, and you know she she had, was suffering from a chronic illness. And as more than a few people with chronic illness and disability do, uh, they use WoW as an outlet. You know, if you're having a hard time leaving your house or, you know, if you're bedridden with sickness or whatever the case may be, WoW is a way to interact with the wider world uh, in a way that feels normal and that lets you feel capable and strong. And and so a lot of people sort of with sickness and disability really invest themselves in it. And she was one of these people. And so she made tons and tons of friends all across the game, both factions of her server. You know, she was really a, a widely known and liked person on her server. And so when she passed away, her friends were sort of left in a strange situation where, you know, it's like if you have a friend now who passes away and like, what do you do with their social media accounts? It was the same kind of question. What do we do with our friend's wow account? Because it meant so much to her. So their solution was that they were going to, they announced an in-game memorial service, which is a really sweet, really a sweet idea. They were going to have her avatar taken to this glacial lake and uh, and sort of laid to rest and they were going to have this you know everyone could because, pay their because respects. Because she loved fishing and the sound of the water calm Right, her. right. She like loved, yeah, it's really, it it's so. like all really sweet which like makes the unfolding of it all the more horrifying and uh, <laughs> the, and uh, and why we're, we're, why it is ultimately a morality play, right? Um, but so she's going to be laid to rest and then Another guild named Serenity Now after the uh, the line from Seinfeld, they decided it would be funny when this when this memorial service was announced, they decided it would be funny to sort of infiltrate the memorial service and then ultimately to attack it and wipe it out and just kill absolutely everyone that was there to pay their respects to this poor departed woman. And then not only that, but then to package it into a really legitimately well done and, and Lord help me, it's funny video well uh, edited the music which, well, edit, yeah just the pounding <laughs> like this pounding danzig baseline is yeah because he plays where eagles dare and and they just wipe out this they just, just it's a merciless slaughter nobody even has a chance to fight back and they, so not only do they do this horrible thing but then they post it online to sort of crow about it and 
people got really upset, <laughs> you know, as as they should, because it's a horrible thing to do. Yeah. It's a horrible thing to do. Uh, and but at the same time, and this is where we come dual wielding morality comes in. It's completely, you know, people were calling for, you know, these people should be banned from the game and they weren't punished because what they did wasn't against any actual rules in the game. Right. They were in the context of the game it is totally reasonable if you know horrifying to to attack your your enemies on the other faction and to kill them in the game so within the context of the game what they did was absolutely appropriate and fair and fine but obviously like the applying of any, the application of any human moral framework to this says that you should not ever do something like this so uh the concept of dual wielding morality sort of acknowledges that yes games are fun yes it is worthwhile to be able to transgress boundaries in a game but we do it is incumbent upon all of us as players and as part of a society especially in social games to maintain a a moral framework that is based on actual human values it is it is not okay to say that this is just a video game and therefore uh complete nihilism is all right with uh, with respect to our fellow man. And the book sort of doubles as this anthropological examination of a subculture, although in World of Warcraft's case, you hardly have to say sub just because it, yeah, it's, it's, such just, a, it's such a big thing. <laughs> yeah. But can you go over the quality of the relationships that you developed in the game? You were brought to the game by a, a good real life friend who was kind of your initial conduit to it. But then you made many connections and you talk in the book about romances and marriages mm -hmm. that started <laughs> in the game. But there are also times where you describe feeling betrayed because you would play the game with the same person or people every day and you'd develop this synergy with those people and then you'd log on the next day and they would have quit the game or joined a different guild mm -hmm. with no warning and so are most of the relationships that develop in a game like this solely focused on the game or do you still have a lot of lasting relationships that you have today even though I, I'm sure you don't spend nearly mm -hmm. as much time in the game? <laughs> You'd be surprised. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually, I, I took about five years. There was about five years gap where I wasn't playing the game. Yeah. Uh, and uh, anyway, so I got into, it was funny you mentioned Guild Wars because Guild Wars was actually like my first little, my first hit of the MMO experience. Yes, yeah, me too. <laughs> Handed to me in a back alley by uh, <laughs> NCSoft when they had, they, they had a, like a free beta weekend before uh -huh. the release. And I'd never played an MMO before. But my girlfriend at the time was like doing a like a term abroad, so I was just bored as hell, and uh, so I tried it out, and I got so 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 into it uh, mm -hmm. that that I decided, oh, okay, I'm going to play Guild Wars when it came out. And then when my friends said, oh, actually, we're going to be playing World of Warcraft, you should play that instead, I knew instinctively that, like, okay, I'm going to get really into this probably, and so I'm not going to have enough time to get really into two things. So I need to pick one, and it's going to be WoW. You know, most of the relationships you form in game are going to be sort of transactional. You know, it's going to be someone that you're trading with, someone you run an instance with. These days, that's particularly true. With the changes they've made to the game to make it a lot easier to find other people to play with, uh, it's not so important what server you're on anymore. It used to be that players were really more confined socially and practically to uh, whatever server they happened to roll on. So you were, it was sort of harder to find groups because it was a smaller group you were pulling from, but you would be seeing the same people 
people over and over again. And you would sort of build lasting relationships over time that way. So it was a lot easier to make friendships in game in the earlier days, just because you were forced into, into consistent contact with more people. But I mean, even to this day, uh, there are a lot of people that are really important parts of my life that are, you know, people I'm in contact with on a daily basis who are my, who are my wow friends. Uh, you know, I have, there's friends that are like, okay, well, I talk about music with these people and there's mm-hmm. other friends where I talk about sports with these people. And I'm sort of, you know, constantly in various, you know, chat programs and group chats and whatever with my old wow guildmates. These are as much a part of my life as any of the friends I went to high school with or college with that I also talk with online. There's there is a difference between, you know, being, you know, hanging out with someone in a consistent basis in real life, but as someone who's moved a lot, most of the friends that I have in my life, I'm in contact with mostly online, more online than anything else. And mm-hmm. so for me, I, I really just don't make that distinction anymore. And it's really remarkable sort of how anytime I have had the occasion to meet up with anybody I played WoW with, even if they weren't someone that I really got along with in game or didn't really like in game. There's just this incredible affection I feel for them immediately uh, upon meeting them. And I don't think of, you know, the times that I argued with them or were pissed off at them. It was just all the fun things we did together. And I remember when this crazy thing happened and just about anyone I meet who played World of Warcraft, I find I can engage in conversation for really as long as either of us care to go. It doesn't matter if we've ever if we've ever met before. It can just be like a clerk at a store or something. Uh, and <laughs> it's this incredible sort. Of, and over the years, even before I was working on the book, it was this sort of fellowship that I shared with a whole bunch of people that I didn't even know. And it would just occasionally pop up in my life. Like any time World of Warcraft people and like real life intersect in my experience is just has been a barrel of laughs. Games more than any other kind of like storytelling medium are really a relationship between the developer and their audience Mm -hmm. just simply because the developer doesn't have time to to explore all the nooks and crannies of the world that they actually created and i think you touch on this in your chapter about the blizzard's attitude towards um, user interface mods this kind of Mm -hmm. modifications that users would make in order to improve their game experience could you talk about that i'm not sure that blizzard understood at the time these decisions were made how (laughs) how brilliant that they would be uh, this is really that this was really against kind of the industry thinking at the time and, right. and certainly now, you know. Right. Yeah. You don't see a lot. Yeah. It, the the tendency then, and it's really just sort of accelerated over time. You're right. Is to try and protect the developers' proprietary tools to try and control and uh, sort of modulate the user's experience as much as possible. And um, when World of Warcraft came out, the decision was made before then. It was made in beta. Um, when World of Warcraft came out, Blizzard made the decision that they were going to have their UI essentially be open source. I'm not a developer, and so I don't want to like throw around industry terms or whatever. But that's it, sort of that's kind of that understanding where they said that you know here we're going to make it very very moddable using this very popular, very simple, very widely known uh, coding language called Lua. And something that's simple enough that a lot of people without really any coding experience can sort of like copy paste and, and, and tweak their way into making functional mods. So they, they had, there's a default UI, but they really just sort of like said it was open season for, for UI mods that anyone could, could make any UI mod that, that they wanted. And then, and that the, the controls would be put in place on Blizzard's end. So 
if there was a mod that showed up that did a little bit too much automation, did a little something that they weren't comfortable with, they could rein that in. But essentially, players were free to tweak their user experiences however they wanted to. And that was more than just a... Uh, cosmetic thing. I want my, you know, I don't like the way my action bars look. I want my buttons to be here instead of here. I want that my targeting frame to be here instead of here. I want, or, you know, I want flashy things to go off every time, every time I proc a spell. There were really functional mods that were right. in place. Like there was really no capacity, for example, at the start of the game to target anybody outside of your immediate party. If you were, you could be in a raid of up to 40 people. That's eight five-man parties. But each one of those five-man parties, you couldn't really target anybody outside of that. So you couldn't really see what or understand what was going on outside of your party until people created UI mods that, in which you could suddenly see all 40 people in a single block of monitors in front of you. And every time any one of them took took a hit you would see their little you could see their health pop down and pop back up in real time and this really like blew everyone's minds blew my mind i should say <laughs> because i i was new to mmos uh, and so the idea that you could be monitoring the status of like 40 people at once and sort of 40 people all working together towards goals like that was was something really new to me and that was really only made possible at the start through the user interface mods and, and and over time, Blizzard has been really smart about integrating the best features of those UI mods into its own UI. So if you're playing the game now, if you just approach the game now, just, you know, about half of the of the elements of your UI that you sort of take for granted and the just the basic conveniences of the game are things that didn't exist until users invented them and implemented them. And and you had an entire you had entire communities sort of spring up around this and it mirrors in a lot of way the proliferation of cell phone apps. There was no central marketplace like the Apple Store or Google Play or something like that. Um, but it was similar in that you had all these people just sort of like making their own software and then spreading the software around through word of mouth and people saying in their guilds like, oh yeah, this is what I use and it's really cool, you should try it out. And then the mods that people use the most that were the most popular got the most iteration, they got the most attention and the bug fixes and so people gravitated more towards them. So you had this whole kind of marketplace that existed totally outside of anything that Blizzard was controlling or even attempting to control. So yeah, it is really cool that they allowed all that to happen and it turned out to be an incredibly brilliant choice on their part not to uh <laughs> not to over design their own ui and let let the let the community do it for them because as the community got more sophisticated the developers got more sophisticated with them so over the course of time over years and years what you've really seen is that the the developers and the community have taught each other so much and they've both gotten so much better at everything that they're doing. So the, the zones and the dungeons and everything are much sharper and the mechanics are so much better than they used to be because the players have done the work to sort of make themselves better and push the developers. So it's this great ongoing relationship fueled by the fact that a lot of the developers are former players. They're you know leaders in the community. They're really high-end arena players or raid leaders or something like that and they contribute to the game over time as they've grown up so that's it's a really cool thing to see as like sort of a follow-up it kind of struck me that warcraft itself is almost a ui mod of life in a way <laughs> you know what i mean where it's like you've you're stripping away the extraneous things that aren't that 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 aren't that fun 
and making the kind of like uh, you know like replacing it with grinding. Yeah, <laughs> but but in a way that's that's you know like we you know life is a grind in itself. You go out, you're trying to acquire resources, try acquire capital, and 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 in the game, it just shrinks those kind of time frames into something and, and and repackages them in a way that's that's really entertaining. That's a really accurate description. I think that the reason going back to the, sort of the opening question, the reason that a lot of people sort of lose themselves in the game and and find themselves maybe spending a bit too much time in it is because WoW is a lot of ways what we want life to be, you know? It presents a society, obviously it's filled with demons yeah. and things, but like it present, fundamentally I, I presents... I want to carry a magic sword, I want to ride a, ti- <laughs> a tiger through the mountains, you know? Like. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so if you, if you do lay aside the fantasy trappings, what you have is a world where nobody really wants for anything. It's a world where... Uh, uh, there's not really any kind of like suffering or poverty or hardship. And it's a world where everyone like everyone has access to everything that they could ever possibly want to. It's just a question of what do you want to do? So that, you know, that's sort of the ideal vision that, you know, you would have for like some utopian society, right? Where like no one has to do anything. You can just everyone sort of decides what their pursuits are going to be. And wow, I think appeals to a lot of people, particularly people who are in, you know, who are, who are struggling with job loss and that sort of thing, because it provides a kind of structure that makes sense like like in, if you if you feel like the world around you is not really responsive to you know to uh your skills or if you feel like i think like a lot of people spend a lot of time feeling for whatever reason like they're not very good at things like they're dumb or like the world is an overwhelming right. noisy place and they're not sure what to do with themselves and wow is this place where there's all where you can always accomplish something where every single person is fast and strong and can and you know has these awesome weapons and armor and there are people who are really written you know they're technically i suppose like there's like i suppose there's income inequality or something but but no one cares <laughs> but no one you know there's rich people there's rich players and poor players but nobody but nobody cares because everyone has access to whatever they want uh whether or not you know you know i i don't feel the need to have millions and millions of gold i I know how much i need to to do the things i want to do in game that's totally fine and so everything that you want to get for yourself if you're willing to apply yourself can you can have in wow there's a very very direct connection between time invested and the rewards that you get and like in the most recent expansion they've actually done a really good job of sort of of sort of extending things out to the point where you always feel like you have some meaningful thing that you can do like even if you have 10 minutes you can log into the game and do like a couple world quests and get and get some uh get a nice little pile of resources for it so wow in a lot of ways when you're playing it and especially once you get good at it it feels the way you want life to feel (laughs) you want you want to be that strong and that powerful and that capable and you want to to be presented with challenges that that even if they're even if they're difficult even if you struggle you know that you can overcome and you know you're eventually going to get to to the end of the rainbow and the pot of gold and that's obviously not the way that life works right nobody's guaranteed anything and mmos offer people 
a kind of structure and a direct and a direct link between work and reward that I think they don't always perceive in their real lives. There's so much we could ask you about if we had unlimited time. I'm really fascinated by the difference in play styles. You describe some people who succeeded at the game by just brute forcing it and not really planning anything, but just devoting a ton of time to it. And then you played with other people who were very into optimizing everything and exploiting every edge as almost like mm -hmm. a sabermetric sort of strategy. It's really interesting. But just to wrap up with a two-parter, first, what do you think WoW's legacy is as a game primarily? Because the last chapter of your book is about mm -hmm. what it meant to the players who played it, and that's probably the most important legacy. But in terms mm -hmm. of what other games or the industry as a whole has taken from it, I'd be curious about any thoughts you have on that. And then also on the personal level, someday Azeroth will cease to exist, most likely. There are MMO worlds that have lingered on for many years with almost no one in them. But someday someone will pull the plug on the last server and that will be that. And I'm curious about what you think you will feel on that day, even if you're no longer playing the game, just the sheer amount of time you've spent in it. To tackle the first part about the mm -hmm. about the, the game and the game industry, WoW is sort of a WoW is in a special place because it's incredibly successful, obviously, and and it's incredibly uh, copied. Uh, you know, yeah. there are a whole bunch of other games that came out in the years following WoW that, whether it was correct or not, were usually derided as WoW clones. Sort of, it, it, mm -hmm. they suffered from the the consequences. The consequence of WoW success was that every game afterwards that came out and like looked or played a bit like it was just called a WoW clone. So it became kind of it wasn't the first MMORPG, uh, but it became sort of definitional of the of the genre in a way that that's been really enduring. So there's a whole lot of legacies from WoW that you see popping up in other games, even if you don't even if they aren't MMORPGs. Like, before WoW, not everything was an RPG, and now, if you'll notice, just about every single game that you play <laughs> in whatever capacity has some component of persistent character advancement, whether or not it's mm -hmm. online. Yeah. Everything has RPG light elements. Like, every single shooter, every every game yep. of every type has sort of RPG, at least RPG light elements, where there's loot, a persistent component of advancement. Exactly. Mm -hmm. loot, loot boxes are a completely... I mean, I guess you could track that back to Diablo. But uh, the, like, golden exclamation points above the heads of things you're supposed <laughs> to talk to, like, sign, like, the setups of, of certain kinds of mini-maps, the way that currencies are handed out on, like, a weekly or daily basis. A lot of, I think, I mean, I haven't played Destiny, but most of the components of a game like Destiny are fundamentally MMO components, right? Like, it's a shooter, but... Mm -hmm. It's really just a, it's an MMO where everything is just instanced instead of open world. And so those components just started filtering into all these other games afterwards down the line. But paradoxically, like because WoW was so successful, that's the reason why there can't be another one. Uh, there is uh, it turns out that people don't people don't consume MMOs the same way they consume other games. A lot of the time people people in general consume video games the way that they consume books, which is that they buy more than they can consume. Uh, in general, there's an idea that like, okay, you, you buy games as they come out and you like them because you think like, okay, well, even if I don't have time for this right now, I'll get to it 
in a couple weeks or in a month, you know, I'll get to it when I'm done with this or it'll go on my list or whatever. But for MMOs, because you're paying a monthly subscription, players are not willing to play more than, in general, are not willing to play more than one MMO at once because they're not like, it requires a time investment and a month to month financial investment that even if it's not that big, is still something that has to be consciously done by the consumer. So people are only willing to play one MMO at a time essentially. And WoW was so successful and the player base is so big and enduring, which guarantees a, a constant stream of content. Essentially, you always have somebody to play with. It's, WoW has become a, a fixture. It's become like a utility like Facebook or Google. You always know it's going to be there. You always know that there's going to be an ample supply of players to fill the instances and to fill the battlegrounds and to give you to give you content, essentially. And you also know that over time, the developer is going to be supporting and updating it so that if you've been gone for a year or two and you come back uh, there's going to be catch-up mechanisms to get you back up to where you know your friends might be if they weren't if they've still been playing the whole time and there's probably going to be all these new mechanics if there's you know every new expansion is essentially a sequel to the game the developers have said they see the expansions as sequels so they roll over so many mechanics and everything it's 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 always something new and it's always something consistent so if anyone really is a consistent mmo fan at these days like it's it's really hard to pull any market share away from wow and so and mmos are such huge investments mm -hmm. that it's very hard and it's they're very hard to make it's very hard to make them to succeed and you cannot make one unless you're willing to sink like you know a couple hundred million dollars into it so mm -hmm. developers after that and it sort of jumped on the wow train immediately after WoW came out then hit the wall and realized how hard and how expensive this was and then there was sort of a backlash because they'd already thrown so much money away on these MMOs that weren't successful that they just weren't going to make them anymore. Then sort of the mobile gaming revolution happened and that was that really. That sort of fractured what was left of the, the PC gaming audience to the degree that it would be really difficult I think to build and sustain an MMO audience at the size of WoW's if you had to start from scratch now. So mm -hmm. I don't think you could possibly pull it off now. So maybe my second question is invalid. Maybe Azeroth will live forever. <laughs> I think that it will last for a long time. I mean, like Ultima and stuff, like like EverQuest is still around. Like mm -hmm. these sort of the the uh, these handful of of really endure. I expect Eve will last forever. There's sort of a handful of like really kind of enduring MMOs that, as long as you have a, a consistent player base, you can sort of sustain financially for a long time. And, you know, I think that one day, you know, one day by definition, like it'll have to, it'll have to be over, you know, yeah. like <laughs> eventually the sun yeah. will expand. And, right, and right. <laughs> exactly. So, and, and I don't think that it's really, like, I don't, I don't think that it's really right. Eventually yeah. the sun will expand and the, the last servers, the last servers will putter out. But yeah. the, I don't think that it's really that helpful to conceive of like, okay, when is the game itself going to end? It's really more useful to think of like sort of when, when any, when does a given players playing mm -hmm. time end. I mean, and I mentioned this in the in the book. One of my one of my my wacky Mexican guildmates who I like I fought with this guy every single day, <laughs> like cats and we fought like cats and dogs all the time. But he was right about certain things, and this is one of them. Was that you know, he always talked about the game in terms, and it, like it was already over. So he, because he'd been a veteran of many online games for a long time, he's older than me or whatever, and he was he always talked about it like it was already over. He's like one day, none of like 
none of us are going to play this. We'll have quit. We'll have moved on to other games. Maybe they'll shut down the servers, whatever. One day, every single one of us who is playing right now will no longer play. And, and, and his takeaway from that was that it meant that you needed to treasure the relationships you had. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, one day, none of us are going to be playing anymore. Nothing that happened in the game will matter except insofar as it affected our relationship. And so he he always maintained that it was never worth having a fight with anyone online. It was never worth having any kind of drama whatsoever because he was always thinking like, I want to in 10 years be able to say this person is my friend. I want to have this friendship and this relationship with this person in 10 years time and I don't really care that much about what's happening in the game right now. And that was a really weird perspective for me you know, when I was like 20 years old and the idea of like 10 years in the future <laughs> was impossible but uh but now that we're here uh i can see that he was completely right about that although you're still playing i am still <laughs> so. i am still playing but you know but a lot of the other people i played with weren't some and yeah and you sort of you, you know you drift in and out of the game and you play different games and and whatever but you mm-hmm. you it's really worthwhile to try and maintain these relationships and yeah. i'm really glad that i have and i sort of encourage uh, i encourage gamers everywhere to do the same which is like sort of on its own like i mean it's just good practice for your life in general but sort of writ large it's kind of the answer to you know massive looming toxicity online and in games is to if you actually conceive of people as real people and treat them that way then you're not going to be screaming at them because that's not the way people that's not the (laughs) way people react in real life you know the the, the sort of hate people get online if you talk to any streamer online celebrity or something that the the stuff that they get online they do not get in real life like people are just Mm -hmm. nice to them in real life so the the message that this wacky mexican programmer turned now he's a banker <laughs> uh <laughs> deliver delivered to me years and years ago that was really true is that the people you meet online are really important much more so than the games that you're playing you should value them all right so live your real life like a video game and live your video <laughs> game like real life sort of maybe we can end on that uplifting note yeah I, i'd have to think about that statement <laughs> for a minute before wholly endorsing it yeah yeah i guess there are there are ways in which you definitely shouldn't do the first one but <laughs> all right well the book again is called blood plagues and endless raids a hundred million lives in the world of warcraft it is all the usual places amazon you can also find out more about it at bloodplagues.com you can find tony on twitter at tony palumbi and again the book is great it's thorough it's accessible it's readable it's fun so thanks for writing it and thanks for coming on thanks Thanks very much for having me guys it's been great all right we'll be right back with rob weaver the designer of ultimate epic battle simulator Dell Gaming creates machines to make every experience more intense and real. From powerful Dell Gaming PCs with Intel Core processors to the ultimate Alienware VR-ready experience, there's a PC designed to bring your best game at every level. Because the best feature of a gaming machine is the power to make you forget it's there. So don't just play, game. Visit dell.com gaming to learn more. That's dell.com gaming. And I also want to introduce you to our sponsor, Gamefly. Are you ready to save money and play more games? Yes, you can do both of those things, because Gamefly is the best way to buy and rent all your favorite games. At Gamefly.com, pick your favorite games and have them mailed directly to your door. Gamefly is the leading video game rental service with over 9,000 titles to choose from. You can try your favorite games and movies before you buy them, keep the games as long as you want, don't have to worry about late fees, you can cancel anytime. So go to Gamefly.com AO and start your free premium 30-day trial today. The premium trial 
allows you to check out two games and or movies at a time. And you can only get this offer by visiting Gamefly.com AO. So go sign up and start playing all your favorite games absolutely free for 30 days. All right. If you are interested in gaming and you've been on YouTube this week or you've visited any video game website, you have probably come across the game Ultimate Epic Battle Simulator. It is a new game on Steam in early access that allows you to pit an extraordinary number of units. Could be soldiers from any era of military history. Could be animals. Could be zombies. Yes, zombies. Giant turtles. (laughs) There's a a high degree of customization. And so it's a, a lot of fun to play around with and it's the product of brilliant game studios and brilliant game studios consists of our guest right now rob weaver hi rob hello i guess give us the origin story or the genesis of the game the response to it has been strong i assume it's maybe exceeded your expectations it's so hard to get noticed on steam since there (laughs) are such a, a quantity of games being released all the time but this one has broken through yeah well it's actually i haven't really talked about it where it exactly came from. It actually started as this project that was actually supposed to be for virtual reality. And because I don't know if you know this, but my last title was called The Last Sniper VR. And mm-hmm. so that was a HTC Vive game that I made that that did okay. And it, it kind of, you know, pushed me towards the VR market. And so what I was actually doing is I started developing a VR game. And it was going to be like an open world kind of Robin Hood theme game. And I really wanted to have large battles in the game. And that's when I started, you know, investigating increasing character count and hosting epic battles in the game. And it kind of just turned into this slowly. And, and that's, that's, that's the beauty of, you know, working on your own is that you can do things like that. You can just start on something and end with something completely different because often that's when the best things happen, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyone who's ever played Age of Empires or Total Warfare series has has attempted to do stuff like this, but the difference here is just like the sheer number of characters and the variety. And it's strangely calming to watch, you know, just to kind of (laughs) let it unfold, let this cacophony of death unfold. Not to get too much into the nuts and bolts of it, but how are you able to do this? Is it a proprietary engine? Like, how how did you make this happen? Well, this is on Unity Engine. So it's not my engine, obviously. Unity has been around for a while now. But anyone going into this, trying to increase the numbers, if you're experienced, you know that doing things the way they've always been done is not the way to do it. Because what we're doing in the game industry now is we're trying to improve the look of the characters, the intelligence of the AI, and all those things just end up giving you the same amount of characters each year on screen, right? So sometimes what you have to do is kind of take a step back and say, how did we have just as many characters way back then, you know, if not more in some games? And so you have to kind of combine old and new technologies in order to, you know, achieve this sort of thing. And I think I've blended the right kind of technologies together. I mean, my AI I definitely lack, but it's a lot of sacrifices have to be made and I'm trying to improve on those, you know. So 
That's where I stand right now. A hundred thousand characters on the screen at the same time <laughs> fighting. I'm not really that interested in the AI. Like, yeah. let's just let this thing roll, man. <laughs> I guess you notice when you, if you try to pit like a few units against a massive army, then maybe it's easier to notice that the individual units don't handle themselves like a fully fledged character would. But it's hard to tell, I guess, when you have this vast quantity <laughs> of characters on the screen. Yeah. What's your favorite matchup so far? Like, is it uh, World War II soldiers versus zombies? Or Honestly, I've been the most entertained by watching YouTubers get creative with unit customization, to be honest, because you just end up with just the wackiest things, you know, and that's, I think that's what I enjoy the most. And I definitely have no regrets adding character customization in there because that has definitely been the highlight of this game for me anyways, because I just watch the creativity of everyone and making super penguins or super tortoises, just hilarious things like that. And I feel like that's what this game has become, you know, just like kind of a Gary's Mod type thing where people are just messing around with the dumbest stuff, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It seems like you're still finding little ways to tweak this and optimize and get Mm -hmm. the AI a little better, the performance a little better. I was reading the fix notes on Steam and one of them is body piling has been optimized. (laughs) Piles now hollow out as they grow, increasing frame rate. (laughs) It's a funny passion to add in there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Can you, without disclosing any competitive advantages here, can you (laughs) talk about any little tweaks like that that you picked up throughout the process that you were able to cut a corner that enabled you to get more on the screen at one time? Yeah, I can talk about that a bit. So the way characters are traditionally done in games is that they're done with skinned meshes and bones. And so the way a character moves typically in a game is you have these skeletons that are underneath a flexible mesh, right? And so when the skeleton moves, the mesh bends with the bones. So just, you know, kind of a real-life approach to it. But it's it's a very slow approach, and it takes a lot of CPU. And one of the reasons why it's exponentially more difficult to get more characters is because the computer has to concentrate on all the bones inside the character. So mm-hmm. if a character has like a hundred bones or so, that's you know it just the amount of processing increases exponentially as you increase the characters, and it basically makes it impossible even in the future to have you know, past a certain amount of of characters on screen. It's just too much for the computer. It it adds up very quickly. And so what I've done is I've just skipped that process. And they're just they're just meshes without bones. That's how it works, basically. Mm-hmm. But that's as far as I'll I'll go with it. <laughs> as a, explaining like the details of how it works, right? So mm-hmm. can you describe how the release has changed I don't know, your life or your work life or what you're able to devote to the game. In other words, if this comes out and now you're getting revenue for it and you're working on it full time, I assume, but has the positive response changed how much attention you're able to devote to it or your plans for the future? How does a successful early access release change things for a developer? Uh, It changes things quite a lot. I was I was anticipating the game to do well, but not quite this well, because what we did, me and my friend Sean, Sean has been helping with uh, promo and helping people on this on support in the forums and stuff. And what we worked together and we we created this large YouTube promotion. Right. And mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why just like you noticed this ex- explosion on YouTube, this was all planned. And we I've been planning this since the start. And and so what I would do is YouTubers, I was throwing all these videos on YouTube, right? And they were 
you know, entertaining to a lot of people and a lot of YouTubers saw value in it and said, I want to play this game for my audience. And so what I did is I created this big list of YouTubers and I, we sent out keys to them all at the exact same time about one week before release. And mm -hmm. so that's part of what happened with the YouTube explosion. And that's part of the reason for that. And we got some pretty big guys on board like Jack Septicai and, and others. So that was really exciting. And it was a complete success. And we we're super happy about that. How long have you been working on the on the title? I think seven months or so now. Wow, yeah, since, since August or no, sorry, since September, October ish. I started development on the the Robin Hood VR project. So, and how long did it take until you had something approaching a playable build? And then, how soon after that did your marketing strategy kind of evolve? Closer to like Christmas time, and that's when I did the green light promo, and that's when the game kind of exploded. and And it was actually due to one video. Uh, it was the Santa Claus uh, versus Penguin video. I'm not sure if you've seen that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it was uh i just it, the idea popped into my head i'm like oh that's that's some good holiday cheer santa claus and penguins murdering each other that sounds great and so i did the video and it exploded it started with reddit and it made it to like the front page of reddit and i think i got eight thousand likes on reddit and so that's what really kind of started launched the game into it kind of its viral state i suppose you could say mm -hmm. and how much work is it for you to add a new skin if you get an idea to do something and you think it would be funny to have this in the game how much work is it do you have to optimize it for that sort of skin or is it just a matter of designing that model and that's that or how long a process is that it completely depends because i'm one person and so the majority of the assets to be honest are actually from online stores right and so what i do is i try and find a good asset if i have an idea and i usually end up finding one because the world is a big place right that's a huge advantage that developers have nowadays it's abused of course <laughs> nowadays <laughs> we've seen it a lot but yeah, like when, when you're just one person, you have no choice but to do these things. So I look for an asset and if I find it, I kind of never know what to expect. Sometimes I can have a new, a brand new character with unique stats in the game within hours. Sometimes it will take an entire day. It really completely depends. I've made my system as flexible as possible, but it, it ranges from two hours to an entire day just to get one character in the game, right? So. And what have the most popular community requests been thus far, whether for features or characters? <laughs> I would say Steam Workshop. People want to be able to mod the game. Mm -hmm. That's of one of the top requests. Yeah. And I've told everyone that I can't even look into that until I feel that the game is at its, you know, kind of version 1.0 stage and then mm -hmm. that's when i feel because i don't want to add you know modding to a game that's not complete and the game is not complete right now it, ha it has work uh, to do yet so mm -hmm. and then there's just tons of unit requests right because anything goes in this game which is the beauty of it but then you get everyone's got tons of ideas like thousands of different unit requests all the time so yeah. we're trying to you know focus on the most popular ones and get them in i added one in in the latest update the dwarf <laughs> so that's <laughs> That was highly requested. <laughs> what? That was highly requested. What's, yeah. the, uh, what's the time frame you think for your actual 1.0 build? And also related, what made you decide, okay, this is ready enough right. now to, to put it out there? Basically, it was at the stage that I felt comfortable sending it to YouTubers. And then I basically set my goal one week of YouTube promotion and then early access release. And so 
that was the goal and that's what I promised and that's what I delivered. I mean, there there are obvious problems with the game still and but I feel that in at an early access point, it's it was ready and it still is, but you know, people are having issues, there's crashing issues. You know, there's problems and there's always problems, especially when you get this many people. The more people you have in on it, the more variety of problems. Like I've seen problems that I don't even believe are possible. <laughs> like people have found the most hilarious and weird bugs in the game. It's it's actually quite funny <laughs> to to watch it all happen in front of me. <laughs> and also to answer the previous question of how long until version 1.0, I mm-hmm. can't say for sure, but my mm-hmm. goal is around, you know, a month or under from now. And so that's what I'm working towards and I might delay it. If I can't, if I feel it's not ready, then I'll, you know, I'll delay it. But even after 1.0, I will obviously just continue to work and work and work on the game and you know and that's especially when I'll when I'll get to the workshop stage and add modding features and you know increase the shelf life of the game and really make people want to continue to play it for a long mm-hmm. time right and that's my yeah. my goal if you could tell us in general terms how does the game simulate the outcome or you know each model each character has attributes and is it like a one-on-one thing like every time a one of the 100,000 people on screen fights one of the other 100,000 the outcome (laughs) is simulated or or how intense is that from a processing perspective it's quite intense but the way there's no real predicted outcome the computer like when these guys go, go against each other I actually have no idea what's going to happen usually because huh. every every character is completely individual in the game. There's no real like kind of like a lot of games when they like they'll approach it from like a swarm kind of perspective where everyone is one. But this is like I've approached this from the start as individuals working towards a greater good, right? And so mm-hmm. you get these very crazy unpredictable outcomes to these battles and and that's why you end up with these very kind of mesmerizing scattered chaos, you know, in the game and that's that's what I've been going for from the start and I think it makes for much more entertaining battles. All right. Well, the game again is Ultimate Epic Battle Simulator. It is on Steam Early Access now. You can watch videos on Brilliant Game Studios YouTube channel and every other YouTube channel out there. (laughs) You can also find Brilliant Games on Twitter. And Rob, we appreciate it. We'll let you get back to programming the next giant animal. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right. So that is it for today. Quick end of the podcast question. This one sent to at Achievement Pod on Twitter from Nico. He says, how many games do you actually finish that you start? And how often do you play through beginning to end one game before starting another? I'll take the second part first. Really almost Mm -hmm. never. I would say I probably finish 30% of the games that I play or one third. It depends. It really depends. But uh, I, I may play a lot of multiplayer games that don't technically have a story finish, but mm-hmm. I'm very close to finishing Horizon Zero Dawn. That will be finished within, within <laughs> yeah. hours. Yeah, this podcast has completely changed the answer to this question for me because before that, when I didn't have that much of a work-related reason to play, I was pretty selective about what I played, and I did tend to finish almost everything and just marathon one game before I started something else. So the answer is completely different now because we're playing a lot more new releases, and then I like them, and then another one comes out, and I have to start it. So like the last several games that we've played, 
played for this podcast I haven't finished yet and I still fully intend to finish all of them but the pile of shame is growing so my <laughs> completion rate has definitely been adversely affected and so has my concentration on a single game at a time but that's all right we're getting to experience more of the video game world all right so we will leave it there we will talk to you all next week bye Thanks again to Gamefly for sponsoring today's episode. Gamefly is the best way to buy and rent all of your favorite games. At Gamefly.com, pick your favorite games and have them mailed directly to your door. Just go to Gamefly.com AO and start your free premium 30-day trial today. The premium trial allows you to check out two games and or movies at a time. You can only get this offer by visiting Gamefly.com AO. So go sign up and start playing all of your favorite games absolutely free for 30 days. The last word today goes to Dell, whose computers I grew up gaming on, played Guild Wars on a Dell computer, and wow for one day. Bring your best game at every level, from powerful Dell gaming PCs with Intel Core processors to the ultimate Alienware VR-ready experience. Don't just play, game. Visit dell.com slash gaming. That's dell.com slash gaming.